In this conversation, I had the pleasure of chatting with John Denners, the Founder and Chief Investment Officer of Paragon Funds Management, a fundamental, high-conviction, long-short equity manager based in Melbourne. John's a mechanical engineer by training, so it was fascinating drawing out his process-driven edge and also talking about Paragon's investment in gold-related equities in the current environment. It should be noted, of course, that none of this conversation should be considered advice. Before you run off and load up on gold equities or anything else that we discuss, please do your own research or seek your own advice. Managing money is not all beer and skittles. One of the hardest things as a fund manager is managing all that comes with a performance drawdown. The personal stresses, the external expectations, the mechanics of handling liquidity and redemptions. While Paragon has had stellar returns since its inception in 2013, they experienced a difficult drawdown in 2018. It's always great to hear with candour how managers handle challenges as well as successes, and I'm grateful for being able to chat with John about how he handled this experience and what he learned. I hope you find the chat as valuable as I did. Enjoy. This is David Hobart from Beyond the Obvious, the podcast in search of unexpected insights for investment professionals. John, thanks so much for taking the time today to sit down and have a chat. It's, uh, you know, I haven't been able to see you or anyone else in Melbourne for um, for some months, so it's probably a good place to start. How are you and your family and, and your team holding up through this uh, lockdown extravaganza? Yeah, thanks, David. Uh, look, we're, we're fine, really. We're, we're quite fortunate that uh, my wife and I, for example, are able to work from home and I particularly like it. In terms of the research uh, that I do for my work, uh, we do have our challenges, you know, with three young kids, 8, 10 and 12, occasionally running over us in the house. But all in all, uh, it hasn't been too bad. In fact, the family time's been great and and we're quite lucky there are other families that are a lot worse off. Uh, so all in all, not, not too bad really. Of course, though, we're, we're looking forward to coming out the other side. Yeah, sure. Noel, uh, as you know, John, I've got a couple of brothers down in Melbourne and um, and it's a little bit week to week. Uh, they at times are in pretty good cheer and then at times are, uh, you know, finding it pretty tough. So uh, I, I, being up in sunny Queensland, um, I mean, in my heart and certainly the people I uh, surround myself with are uh, always thinking of the Victorians and we hope, um, you know, you guys come out of this uh, with a spring in your step because, um, yeah, it's not fun for anyone. No, that, that's that's the plan indeed. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so John, uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about um, your background in the first instance. Like, so you came through doing mechanical engineering. I mean, firstly, what was it that drew you to mechanical engineering? And then I guess the obvious question post that is, what led you from mechanical engineering into finance? Yeah, sure, David. I... Uh, I was always interested in engineering when I was back back quite young. I, I knew of engineers that were uh, constantly travelling the globe on various projects, and and that that appealed to me. and And so, initially, went on to study mechanical engineering and had a great time doing that. Uh, and was fortunate enough to to do the work that I was after, basically designing and building large-scale projects uh, started in Australia and then and then went across the globe, went to 
the worked in the US, China for a year, Europe, uh, and and did that for about eight years, basically designing and building uh, multi hundred million dollar automated pharmaceutical facilities. And the last role was a couple of years in Ireland, where, which was absolutely booming at the time. And mm-hmm. I knew those roles were few and far between wanting to come home back to to Australia. Uh, I knew that coming home it would mean um, very different opportunities and, and, and pretty hard to get that type of work. And so I always had an interest in investment in the financial markets and basically use that transition to go back to school and and um, and so what am I now? Uh, I suppose 16, 17 years later, uh, I've been able to use that background of, of engineering and apply that to some of the investments that, that I make. And so it is a little bit of a um, little bit of a career change, but it's not that uncommon. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm again fortunate enough to be able to get to, I suppose, what I was after, you know, nearly 20 years ago. Yeah, right. So, was as a mechanical engineer, like the skills that you got or that you developed within that capacity, is that like systems thinking and lots of? I'm not. I don't know specifically what what skills you need to apply uh, in doing that sort of work. And and you know, how does that relate, or like, how has that helped your thinking uh, in inside of what you currently do? Yeah, so uh, I suppose it depends on the engineering discipline. And I I studied mechanical, and mechanical, like a couple of the other disciplines, are very maths and science based. And that was, you know, I'm, I'm very quantitative. I always have been, and uh, both study and engineering roles. There were um, lots of roles where I effectively used those fundamental skills, and and um, you know, the the concentration ended up being in designing and building facilities and I got to do that a few times. And so uh, then when I thought about finance and you know, studying an MBA, I, I just found that I had most of my interest in the applied finance type subjects, which for me was a, an extension of, of what I'd done in my cr- prior career and, and uh, liking numbers and liking seeing projects, investments go from, call it early inception, discovery if it's a resource project through feasibility, funding, construction. I just found whilst, of course, it was a uh, different career path, there were fundamental skills that I was able to directly uh, apply. And, in fact, that's kind of been my edge in, in terms of the investments we make, utilising that background and uh, and natural bias, I suppose, on you know, I'd like to think I'm good with numbers and, and uh, like I said, utilise our skills basically every day. Yeah. Can we go into that a little bit, John? Like, like you, you talk about that's been your edge. Like, uh, I mean, I'm always and forever curious about, you know, what skills people bring to their investment strategies and, you know, what it is that differentiates them, why it is that they're good at what they do. So, you know, you, you, know, you talk about that, that sort of mechanical engineering or engineering thinking or, or modelling or, you know, process thinking to what you currently do. How, how does that actually turn out as an edge? Um, okay, yeah, good. 
Uh, great question. I look for starters. My background was, as I said, designing and building uh, what were called world-class development assets across various jurisdictions, and so. Um, uh, and having been through that and, and looking at the kind of investments we make, uh, it's fair to say that you know a lot of our big winners have been identifying these early stage opportunities, call it a, I don't know, a micro cap or even a small cap that by way of uh, proving concept, if it's an industrial business or if it's a resource business, call it a large scale discovery that uh, and, and applying financial modelling and industry comps and our experience to, you know, assess what the CapEx, OpEx and ultimate economics might be and and uh, and and finding something that can go all the way, uh, say, from discovery, feasibility through to funding, construction and having been on both sides, call it the front end as an engineer and, and, and uh, now... Um, allocating capital to these sorts of opportunities as a fund manager, uh, it requires being able to identify these opportunities for starters early, and then um, you know using your experience and uh, and smarts to effectively financial model um, the various scenarios that may play out under a development scenario, and and uh, and maybe that's not. All that common. Uh, there's certainly lots of funds I know that that can do that, but there are. Um, but it takes uh, experience and, and, and a stomach really to be able to to back these things well ahead of call it feasibility works that are released to the market. And and if you do this right, of course, uh, you know these stocks end up being super performers, uh, market leaders. And and for the you know coming up to 12 years, I've been managing money. You know, we've had a few of these success stories. Of course, they don't they don't all work, but we've had sure. many huge success stories. And they could be, uh, you know, you look at Oracobra, which discovered a world class lithium brine asset in Argentina, and in two thousand and nine we took a substantial position, and they built the first project of its kind in twenty years into a into a very strong lithium bull market, and so. Uh, you know, we're constantly looking for themes that we think will play out, um, you know, growth thematics over the long term, and then the best investment opportunities that will de-risk and deliver uh, under that with that tailwind. And so, you know, having an engineering background, being able to model these stocks, sometimes they're complex, sometimes they're not. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, the complexities have all sorts of factors, whether it's geological, metallurgical, uh, mechanical of course, how they're funded. Uh, so there's a raft of things to consider. And, and if you've been through this several times, and and, and, and we have, uh, it can really place you well into making these sorts of investments. Wow. So you, there's a few things that come up through that, John, obviously. But the first thing that comes to mind is how do you, how do you uh, find the opportunities from a big universe, how do you find the opportunities to start doing the work on in the first instance? Yeah, so that's that's the challenge. Given we're a, we're a small fund, we're, we're three people, and uh, and so we can't be everywhere, nor do we want to be. Uh, and and you know, I should have added, it's a fifteen percent of the funds under management are our own, and to, and and I'm the bulk of that. 
and so we're, with our investors, we're obviously very interested in best allocating our capital, and and so we really only have the bandwidth to uh, focus, you know, identify and focus on four to five thematics maximum, mm-hmm. and uh, and if if the theme identification top down is done well, it it's something that should play out over, you know, ideally five years minimum, and some of the themes. Uh, David, we've identified early, and you know, the lithium thematic. It's fair to say we were one of the first. Uh, I don't know too many others that were vocal. Uh, mm. We were called mad scientists early on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone thought the whole sector was conceptual, and of course, look at where we are today and where Tesla is. Uh, mm. Other thematics that are not unique to us. Uh, you know, they're themes that are known and uh, right across the market. The challenge, of course, is finding the best stocks of that thematic. Uh, sometimes themes can outlast the stocks, particularly if the stocks have already run. And so, mm. yeah, it's four or five themes. Um, you know, I'm, I, I might be leading three of them, my colleague Harris, uh, the other two. And then, you know, we run a concentrated fund uh, in that, you know, we're never more than 30 stocks long. We'd prefer to be more like 20. Um, right now, we're, we're kind of in between, and and really the bulk of the stocks and the capital allocation is to bottom up stock picks that we think will play out with that strong thematic thematic tailwind. And so, you know, big themes for us that have uh, for Paragon anyway have been the lithium thematic, the electrical vehicle thematic. Uh, that's been great, and it's been great in that we've been able to re- identify stocks early like Oracoba and recycle that money into. Kidman Resources, when that was a uh, definitely a micro cap at around a 25 million market cap, and then of course three years later taken over by West Farmers for almost 800 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, now, of course, another thematic, if I can call it that, is is what's playing out in gold globally, and yeah. we've been very vocal for a while, uh, but definitely for the last two years, and and allocating money across. Uh, a handful of names that we think well that have done very well and we think will continue to do well. So, yeah, the thematics can they originate various ways. Uh, I think the lithium theme early on was that was uh, coming out of the GFC when Obama was was keen to promote growth any way he could and and effectively through capital and 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 uh, resources at promoting. Uh, the lithium-ion EV theme, which had already started in Europe, and and so we, that got us interested, and of course led us to the investments that we've made. And gold, similarly, we uh, we we saw what was playing out, um, the risks to interest rate cuts, and of course, um, you know, the COVID pandemic has has really accelerated that theme. But yeah, they they vary, David. Can we talk to that a little bit, John? Like, I mean, we'll use the gold thematic as an example, but just in, in terms of uh, how you go about identifying a top-down macro theme before you then go and do the work on the individual stock selection. So, what what is what is the thinking? Like, how, how does your macro play out inside what you what your um, you know how you build your portfolio? Yeah, sure. Uh, big question, but with gold, uh, look, oh, I should add. The advantage uh, we've had with gold is we invested through a last gold cycle. I started in the financial markets, basically in the depth of the GFC, uh, you know, call it December 2008, and was very focused on QE, the first QE package that was ever announced in November 2008. And, of course, coming out of the GFC, there were, there were two more, QE 2 and 3, and, 
and got to see all the levers, uh, macro levers at play uh, and unusual monetary policies that were applied and what that did to risk markets, you know, what that did to the US dollar and, of course, risk assets or commodities and particularly gold and silver. And so, uh, and then, of course, saw um, that cycle play out and the bear market in gold, the gold topped out late 2011 and then had a uh, quite a long down cycle uh, for five, almost six years. And so, being an avid resource investor, I'm, I'm constantly researching these cycles. And and so what what we saw through call it late 16 through to 2018 was definitely a bottoming process for the commodity. And uh, and then of course the the top down call it catalyst big thematic drivers that uh, we thought were setting up the next upswing, the next upcycle. And they were, uh, you know, there were question marks on global growth. There were, there was what we thought were, was a big mismatch to uh, cash rate expectations, as in cash rate rises uh, mm-hmm. and um, the unwinding of QE. And, and we took a view that, that markets were going to struggle, struggle with uh, quantitative tightening and we saw a little bit of that early on with the taper tantrum, uh, and then we just saw the mismatch in terms of what the market was pricing in for rate increases, and and if they um, continued to play out to to too high a level, that you'd see what then played out in markets. And so, effectively, we've had the perfect storm play out, David. But we we took a view top down, and then and then one by one, we were just ticking off the things that were supportive for a for a new bull market in precious metals and and of course it it started with um and of course it got a lot of fuel uh it, so it started in late um look there's a depends on where you draw the line it, i mean some say that the bull market started in third quarter 2016 and and um yes it did have a bounce uh, although it came almost almost all the way back to a 20 percent correction but then of course this time two years ago Gold started to make its move, and you know, bond rates collapsing, long-term bond rates, real rates going low to negative globally, and now, of course, negative in the U.S. And inflation expectations rising, cash rates. Of course, you had fuel to this bull market with the the COVID nineteen pandemic, and despite an initial uh, volatility bout for gold, you had, of course, cash rates go to zero, and. And for gold really to reinstate itself as an alternative currency. And so whether it's cash rates going to zero, bond rates collapsing, inflation expectations rising, US deficits are now at, what, 16% of GDP and and look like they're going to greater than 20%, which you had three of those years uh, uh, back in the 40s. And so I could go on, David, but it was basically uh, one by one, uh, you were seeing macro um, in indicators as well as unprecedented monetary and fiscal responses globally, uh, which have set up in our minds the perfect storm for gold. And so, this uh, these these uh, catalysts, you know, they they've played out over time, and and we have effectively in- allocated more capital to gold as as the thesis has played out, and you know now we're in a in a pretty unrivaled uh, environment for what we think could happen to gold. And if you look at past cycles and history, you know, all, all the indicators are there for us and, and we're, we're quite bullish on what we see coming for the next, next two years minimum. 
Yeah, sure. So that I mean that that's a pretty great summary around the macro. So so the next thing you would do in your process, or you know, concurrently in your process, would be to look at uh, the types of companies that would benefit from you know that move in the underlying. Uh, so ha- how do you sort of work out what's a good company and what's a bad company, or what's the best way to get you know the most leverage to that move in the underlying? How do you how do you look at that? Uh, sure. So, as most would know, the the equities are generally uh, leveraged two to three times to a gold price move, and that just varies on whether it's a you know large cap, mid cap, small cap. And uh, once we had established our view that uh, we were going to be in a stronger for longer gold bull market, it really then uh, opened up, call it the market cap spectrum and the type of stocks that you want to invest in with that, call it strong tailwind behind you with uh, the view on the upside risk in the commodity price. And so, you know, early on, it was uh, it was, it was was more liquid names, uh, call it mid and, and, and large cap. Although once once we got to a certain level of catalyst, we we then, and we were very vocal about this, it's, it's when you're in a stronger for longer environment, the best gains are, are, are always made, it, whether it's gold or any call it uh, resource subsector, in the uh, high cost leverage names, the discovery development stories, that's where the, the real leverage is, as well as call it a brownfield turnaround type asset that uh, was previously uneconomic or had you know, a certain set of issues, maybe a hedge book that killed them that was out of the money. And so uh, our focus definitely uh, over time uh, and our allocation of capital has, has gone from call it Larger mid and large caps to across the spectrum, and now we're we're uh, we're it's fair to say our capital is is more in the small and and mid caps. Fortunately, David, it's um you know the the we're no longer seen as uh, gold bugs. Uh, there's the weight of money is clearly coming to the sector, and so liquidity has also improved right across across the cap spectrum. And and if you look at our you know our several gold stock picks, uh, they're uh, they're a mix of micro, small, and mid caps by and large, and they're a mix of. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, we've been vocal and early on Degray, which who have made arguably, well, I think the best gold discovery in Australia's last ten years, and and it could potentially be the biggest discovery in, or one of the biggest discoveries in Australia's uh, history. So we were there quite early on the first um, discovery hole at a new zone, and so we've got two or three names like that. We've got a couple of uh, brownfield turnaround assets that, you know, might have failed in the last gold bear market with companies that either had too much debt uh, and hedge books out of the money, and and they've since changed hands and been recapitalised, and and uh, and so we're using our, our experience there and backing management that have done it before, and so these names, last gold cycle, it was in a name called Silver Lake that was one of the best performers in the Australian gold mm. sector and and we think we might have a couple of those uh, and then of course we're in a couple of mid caps that are that have um, you know value in in current producing assets that that are growing and are, are doing that under with low capital intensity so it's a it's a mix of names uh, where we you know we don't throw darts like like some people we um, you know small fund limited capital we want to own what we think are the you know, hopefully the best of the of the sector, and uh, so we're across, as you'd expect, 
the entire sector, whether it's uh, exploration, uh, small mid-cap growth producers and even some of the large caps. Yeah, right. So, John, when when did you get first – like when did you first dip your toe in the water in on this thematic? Oh, now you're testing my memory. We Or give or take, but you know. No, that's that, okay. That, that, Paragon's uh, – we're into our eighth year yeah. and I'd worked at a global resources longshore fund for four years prior to Paragon and, and so uh, that was my focus and definitely the Australian Longshore book from, like I said, the start of 2009 and – when we launched Paragon, Gold was going through a pretty uh, big bear market and, yeah. the, again, we're still focused on the thematic. It's fair to say uh, we were probably more short than long. Um, whilst it was a bear market in US dollar terms, uh, the Australian dollar gold price with the collapse of our currency at the time in our early years saw some Australian names do really well, basically buying assets that majors were giving up for next to nothing. And so we were... Uh, we've been active in gold both long and short, literally our eight-year history. We have had periods of not being there at all, but but this current theme, this current bull market anyway, which, like I said, in my mind started two years ago you know, with gold up, oh, what I think, just over 70% since uh, August 2018. That's been, I suppose, yeah, two years of focus for us in terms of allocation of capital and, and we've been invested in probably 15 stocks through that two-year period. Some we're still in, others we uh, did well and we've taken profits and recycled that money into the next uh, suite of opportunities. Yeah, sure. So you mentioned, um, you know, you were early uh, in your in the last iteration that you the business that you are involved in, you know, you had a fair amount of short exposure uh, in the sector. So how, how do you manage shorts inside Paragon these days? And Like how much of your portfolio is short and... Yeah, how do you manage that uh, short exposure? We uh, we are a long short fund. Uh, I should add that we we can have gross exposure up to two hundred percent. Not that we've gone anywhere. Not that we've gone near it. Uh, our net exposure, on average, uh, for the seven and a half years we've been running the fund, has been seventy uh, percent, just over. And think, on average, it's been call it a I don't know, just using round numbers, a hundred percent long and thirty percent short. Call it. 25 stocks on the long side and maybe 10 on the short side. The shorts are always equities uh, and Australian, it's an Australian fund, so Australian stocks and they, and for liquidity reasons, they're always um, large cap. Occasionally, we might have some mid caps. And what we might do, David, is uh, so the shorts tend to be like the opposite of a long. And so we call call it a stock specific short where, you know, we just think there's earnings risk or there might be, if it's a, resource company there's some sort of technical risk uh, and so we think the stock has a considerable downside and will be short for that alpha that we think we can make uh, that all that absolute return on the stock falling um, equally and otherwise we might um, you know if we're long call it a small or mid cap name that that we're backing for two to three years and gold's going to go through what we think might be a you know a volatile short-term period we might hedge that underlying commodity exposure by adding a couple of shorts and um, and so we, we might apply some shorts that way but but uh, we are um, we're, we're an active fund uh, we're not 30% short today we're more like 16% short and we we and the reason being is that um, well when the COVID plant pandemic played out 
about three or four days before the market bottom, we just thought it had fallen too far too quickly and 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 had covered our entire short book. And then, of course, uh, right near the bottom, US Feds announced uh, QE to infinity, as we call, as as many have called it, and uh, and effectively went what we we want, went in our minds what was max long and kept the shorts to a minimum. And as they are today, really, we only have five. Uh, five stocks short, and they are they are all stock specific shorts. Uh, and it's been, unfortunately, it's been the right call. It was a hard environment to be short uh, up until this latest round, of, latest bout of volatility. But yeah, we they're always stock shorts, uh, and they're either absolute or to pair out some exposure we have on the long side. Yeah, no, it makes sense. So, John, I, I thought maybe I know you've had. Uh, I mean, it's been you say about eight years or thereabouts uh, since Paragon started, and and you know you've had you know on balance a f- fantastic performance, but you've had also a period there in in twenty eighteen where you know you experienced a reasonable kind of drawdown, uh, and I thought it might be worth just sort of interrogating that a little bit, just just in terms of one, you know, what led to it, but two, how you managed it you know there's it's really tough uh, as a fund manager but particularly you know that was only i'm guessing uh, what six years into your journey where you, you know you had a a pretty gut-wrenching drawdown and and how you manage you won your own emotions around it how you manage external expectations how you manage redemptions and, and the impact it has on your business and i mean there's lots of questions in there but but i just thought it'd be worth spending a moment just to sort of see how what you learned from that experience, what you did, and what you learned. Yeah, thanks, David. It it uh, it's it's a great question, and it was a really challenging period. And like many of us, I'm sure one of the skills we've really had to hone in on has been effectively managing volatility, because uh, the volatility in that year was was too great for many, uh, in, including myself. I I don't really want to go through another one of those, and it. And it it's clear that it's one thing to make money, which I've been clearly uh, able to do, but it's another thing to effectively preserve it. And and when you look at our strategy, uh, it's you know it's it's a challenge uh, in periods like 2018. Uh, you know we are an all cap fund, and so the smalls uh, do have their added volatility, and we do run a concentrated strategy, investing in industrials and and resource stocks, and uh, and so. Um, that that period was a real real test for us. Of course, it was um, you know there was a small, much smaller period of volatility when Trump won with surprise presidential victory. Mm. Uh, but of course, that led to the 2018 USA-China trade war, and and we were you know we had a fairly sizable allocation to to resource stocks and China facing. Call it resource subsectors, and uh, and so you know, markets came off. We came off uh, a lot more, and it was a challenge in um, in many ways. It we had uh, you know unfortunately we had raised a fair bit of capital uh, leading up to that because we we attracted a fair bit of money on the lithium thematic, and um, what we learned was it was a lot of it was you know some fast money in and fast money out mm. and and when you don't when you manage, manage an open ended fund of course we always wanted to provide the liquidity uh, which we did of course there are other funds out there that that would halt redemption that halted yeah, redemption right. and that's something we never wanted to do and so 
that compounded the downside that year. Uh, the the number, of course, if we were a smaller fund, sorry, if we were a close-ended fund, could have been a lot different. But as as you and I both know, as as um, you know, having managed money, that it's just something you have to deal with, and it was a it was a real lesson for us. I'd like to think I'm a lot better at, at um, assessing certain investors and what we think might be sort of fast money that might want to come into the fund. And, and we've really changed the mindset of, uh, you know, trying to grow grow quickly and and we're not concerned with, um, you know, how, how long it might take us to raise fund. We think we can do that just with performance alone as, as, as we have been doing. Uh, and being big investors in the fund alongside our uh, investors, we're just trying to focus on performance. And and so the biggest thing that's come out of this is, yes, there's a thrill in making money for investors, but uh, my biggest lesson is really focusing on sticking to stricter risk framework regardless of the constructive view I might have on a thematic longer term. And so it was a challenging period, David, but... Uh, you know, having been through it, you, you learn a lot. My prior fund, we had a you know, circa 25% drawdown in 2011. Of course, we still had really strong four years, particularly out of the book that I managed, the Australian Longshore Component. And so having been through it a couple of times, uh, you know, call it two, two big drawdowns. And, of course, we had COVID this, yeah. this year. We've, um, one thing we've been able to demonstrate now, I think, pretty pretty effectively is where you know, we don't quit, we're, we back ourselves and, and we're able to recover from these drawdowns uh, in sometimes fairly quickly quick fashion and that's just a function of markets and the sectors that we invest in. So a bit of a roundabout, uh, long-winded answer there, uh, David, but I, I um, you know, some of the best guys in the world go through it. Uh, I'd like to remind myself and others that even Buffett has uh, averaged, I think, one negative year every six. Now, I'm not, um, of course, his track record is amazing, but we um, we'd like to think that we're we're constantly learning and and uh, and believe we're pretty well placed, and and it's there for us to demonstrate how we go through, you know, next bouts of volatility that will will, will no doubt come up. Yeah, sure. No, well, uh, certainly in my experience, John, the um, you know, it, it, it's managing drawdown like it, it's. You know, often uh, large investors won't go into a fund that hasn't experienced the drawdown because they want to actually see how the manager handles the drawdown experience. Um, you know, so they want to see a manager come out of it, uh, which you know clearly you've done, which is uh, which is great. And and the the other question in and around the drawdown, John, is is the stress. You know, look, it's a pretty uh, gut wrenching experience from a number level, a number of levels, particularly as an owner of the business as well, and with your own capital invested, you've got you've got your family stresses, you've got the business stresses, you've got the investor stresses, other stakeholders in your business and your staff. So there's a lot of things to manage. Uh, how how did you find you know a sense of balance uh, personally through that process? Sure, it, one of the well, one of the Best things I've found, uh, I've been doing it for uh, several years now, is, uh, is meditating. I do that in a couple of forms. Transcendental meditation has been has been uh, amazing, uh, and it's just it's enabled me to go through the any volatile period with uh, as clear a head as I'm able. And, and the other way, I'm an avid cyclist, mm. 
and uh, going out for big long rides and clearing the head and, and just trying to think openly and clearly with you know, being away from a screen. It's just something that I found hugely beneficial. Uh, and then, of course, just uh, being able to hang out with my wife and family. Uh, but it's um, it's not to say that it's uh, it runs perfectly smoothly, David. Yeah, sure. I, uh, I had my periods, but I, uh, you know, it's fair to say, you know, I just have a, you know, I'm fortunate that I have a never quit mentality. And, and when you've got, as you said, you know, your own money, client money, friends, family, uh, it's, you know, I take it very seriously. It's a privilege managing money and and one of the biggest satisfactions I get is is um, is making money for investors and uh, and you know I'm fortunate to have had some investors investors back me through the swings and that's what I look forward to doing you know coming out the other side which we have now but really from my perspective we're just back to call it fun highs and it's now all about what we can do from here and 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 so I just try and keep those things up meditating cycling walking uh you know it has been a great help that um you know we've had the ability to you know keep the business funded and uh and and you know our most recent hire harris kaliki who's been who's been a great addition to the team and that was you know investment that i made out of my own pocket you know given where the fund level was at and and more we're fortunate that we've been in that position to be able to do it and, uh, you know, we're coming out the other side and, and really after, you know, the volatility that we've gone through in the last, just, just the last two or three years alone, very much look forward to the other side and we're genuinely, you know, optimistic and, and if not excited about about what's ahead. Uh, like I remember the last gold cycle, for example, and, and I see that all over again and some and, uh, you know, if we navigate and and do this right it it should be a rewarding uh rewarding couple of years yeah great john um oh, i think uh that's probably a great place for us to uh, pull it up i think that was um really really like so many nuggets uh inside of that for for self-directed investors but also for you know fund managers you know in terms of experience the experience you have it's great to be able to talk about the good stuff, but it's also really valuable to talk about the tough stuff. And and um, you know, you, you you've been in the game for long enough to have had plenty of both. So you know, thanks for sharing all that you have there. Now, b- before we do wrap up, John, is there any kind of parting thoughts or anything that you you know that you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, sure. Thanks, David. I think uh, it's an ideal environment to be investing in as, as, as hard as that might seem for some to hear. Uh, and I've been, I've been saying this for a little while since, uh, well, really since the March 23 market low and some really struggle with the way markets have responded. But for me, it's been uh, quite an expected response. And yes, markets have become extended, particularly call it the NASDAQ in the US and certain stocks, whether it's an Apple or Tesla look really extended and and we've just seen markets correct 10 or 11 percent and and it has uh lots of pundits globally talking of you know a big downside cycle that may come and of course there are risks out there with um you know the u.s presidential election although uh depending on your view if uh, trump gets up i think this buoyancy market resumes and you really want to pick 
your sectors to be invested in and, and there's a few sectors that we think will do really well and and if it's not yourself managing money it's it's allocating to those that you think can do it uh, and despite the, the bounce that we've seen it's you know it was a bit hard for me promoting uh, the fund in call it periods of weakness and of course that's the best time to do it but having said that there are still opportunities abound across various sectors and we we're, we're in some and and I'm sure your investors are probably equally doing the same yeah Great. Okay, John. Well, I'll, I'll, um, if people want to get in touch with you or get in touch with Paragon, what's the best uh, place for them to do that? Thanks, David. They uh, All our details are up on our website. If you just want to contact us either via email or call, one of us will get back to you. Yeah, no problem at all. So uh, that's paragonfunds.com.au. No problem. I'll link to that in the show notes. John, thanks again for uh, taking the time. It's been a great chat and, um, you know, good luck over the coming months and I hope, um, you know, you get to get on the bike and ride more than 5Ks around and around in circles uh, sooner rather than later. Oh, as do I, David. Thanks for the opportunity and support. Yeah, no problem. That's it for today's episode of Beyond the Obvious. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or on my website, davidhobart.com. Until next time, hooray. Right.